This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Before I pray and ask for the Lord's blessing, I want to point out a couple things. And one of them is that uh, these verses bear a striking resemblance to James chapter 4. There in James chapter 4, the brother of the Lord writes, <clears throat> verse 7, or verse 6 rather, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He quotes the same proverb. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So you can hear a, a lot of similarity there. <clears throat> now James wrote to warn complacent Christians. Peter writes to encourage suffering Christians. And it shows us how truth can have different applications. Uh, so our context, again, is to be an encouragement to those who are under pressure. And then I'd like to point out something about the transition between verse uh, 4 and 5. You notice verse 5 begins, likewise. Uh, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. What do you mean likewise? What do you think he means? And, and what's, to whom are the elders subject? He didn't say that. Oh, he did, not directly, but indirectly. Because he told the elders of the church that they are to shepherd the flock of God as God would have you. And that there is a chief shepherd. In other words, as the pastors of the church humble themselves to, to shepherd, to pastor, not as they maybe would like, but as the chief shepherd desires. Likewise, you who are younger are to submit to the elders who are under the, uh, the chief shepherd. Now, who are the, uh, the younger? <clears throat> uh, it could be either a reference to newer Christians, young in the faith, uh, or it could simply be a reference to those who are of a young age in the congregations. Uh, it's impossible to be absolutely sure, but I'm inclined to think it's the second. Uh, the younger in age in the congregation may be more apt to resist the authority and guidance of the elders, particularly if under pressure, it leads to more suffering. And so he says to them, likewise, you are to submit. But then that brings us to the central point of our section this morning, and that is that all of us, young and the elders, everyone, are to clothe ourselves with humility. So let's pray now as we seek the Lord's help. Gracious Father, you ministered to us in our first hour together, and we pray that by your mercy and grace, you who build your house, you who caused the growth would bless your word, that you would give your word divine power and that you would use me as your servant to speak through me and that you, Lord, would build us all up in this most holy faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Describing the spiritual struggle of faith which every Christian has or will experience the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, people, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Behind all persecution, behind all hostility to the faith, lies satanic activity. There is a devil. There is such a one as a devil. And persecution, hostility against the faith, is the devil roaring like a lion, seeking to devour a believer's faith, to devour a believer's joy, a believer's hope and confidence, and to devour a believer's testimony, to, to sideline him. He cannot devour your soul if you are a believer. You are in the firm hands, the saving hands of God. But he can do all those other things, you see. And so what does the church who is under this kind of hostility need to do to gain victory over the enemy's roars? What, what is the church to do to persevere? Indeed, what is every believer to do to hold up against the devil's roars and, and threats? What is it we need? We need grace. God's sustaining grace. And to whom does God give grace? To those who humble themselves before God and admit their need who turn to him, who don't seek to live in their own strength, but seek and find the help that God offers through faith, you see. And so, once again, these three verses continue to be concerned with the central message of, of this whole book, and that is, what is the ap appropriate Christian response to persecution, to unjust suffering, in whatever form it takes? Uh, that's what it continues to be concerned with. But what he says, once again, may be applied in large measure to other sources of pressure to deny the faith or to not trust God's love and so forth. And so what is the appropriate Christian response? Well, there are many components, and Peter has been unfolding them. But the central thing he tells us here is what is our, uh, the appropriate response? It is to be clothed with humility before God and toward one another. What is it to be clothed with humility? It is to see yourself as a servant of God and all of God's people. And how do I clothe myself with humility? By entrusting your circumstances to God's loving care. Those are the two major points Peter is making here. What is it to clothe yourself with humility? It is to see yourself as a servant of God and of all of God's people. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Peter says, clothe yourselves. And this concept of clothing oneself with a Christian virtue is a common New Testament motif or New Testament image, right? Paul says, put on the new man. Clothe yourself with the new man. Paul says, put on, clothe yourself with love above all things. And so here Peter uses that same motif and he says, put on, clothe yourselves with humility. Another virtue, right? Toward one another. 
And because Peter says humility toward one another, uh, this inclines many a New Testament scholar to see here a very subtle reference to putting on the apron of a lowly servant. Putting on the apron of a servant. Humility, while it is seen as a virtue in the Christian faith and in the New Testament, was not seen as a virtue in the Greek and Roman culture. In all literature outside the New Testament, uh, this idea of humility, this idea of showing deference to others was seen as the attitude that belongs to a slave. You know, the world belongs to the strong, right? And not to the humble. In ancient households, slaves would tie a white scarf or tie an apron over themselves for two primary purposes. One, to mark themselves as being a servant in that household. And secondly, in a very practical way, simply to prepare to serve. In other words, put on the apron to do the dirty work. Peter has already taught us that we are members of God's household. We are a spiritual household. We are priests in the household of God, offering sacrifices. We are his servants, and here he underscores we also are servants to one another. And our great exemplar always, the one worthy of emulation, once again is our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you will remember that on the night of the last Passover with his disciples, on the night in which the Lord's Supper was instituted, that Jesus stood up during the meal and he took off his outer garments. And what did he do? He tied a towel, a servant's towel, around his waist. And then he bent down on his knees and began to wash the feet of the disciples. Washing the feet of guests was a common practice in the ancient world. But that duty was reserved for the lowliest of slaves in a household. And in fact, it was against the law to force a Roman citizen to wash anyone else's feet. Because that's how low that was seen. And here Jesus puts on the towel and expresses kneeling love, if you would, and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And when he gets to Peter, what did Peter say once again? He says, no, Lord, no, you, you can't wash my feet. And what was Peter getting at? What he was saying was, really, you're above this, Lord. You're above this. This is too low. This is too demeaning. You are the Messiah. He had already said you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that Peter and James and John were concerned, uh, uh, concerned with, with position. And we saw last week they were arguing, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And so here, the very last lesson that Jesus gives to his disciples before his, his arrest and crucifixion is a visible demonstration of what he had already told them earlier, which is what? The greatest among you will be the servant of all. How low of a servant? On your knees, watching feet. Say, the greatest among you will put on the servant's apron. What is the apron? 
that we are to put on? What is the outer garment that we tie on? It is an attitude. It's humility. Humility is, is our servant's apron, if you would. What is humility? The term is an interesting term. The term means lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. It means having a proper perspective or view of yourself in light of who God is, you see. It's not about beating yourself up, per se. Humility is born in the presence of God. Someone has said, humility is like a shadow before God. Where God is, there will be a shadow. There will be humility. Where God is absent, in the heart, there will be pride. And so humility grows in that soil of encounters with the glory of God. It begins with a proper perception of Him, having a high view of God. He alone is sovereign. He is almighty, he, omnipotent. Yes, He is always the same. He's the creator. And we are what next to that? A wisp, a vapor, a grass that grows for a little while and then and then we're gone, you see. We are creatures. He's creator. The Puritan John Flavel said, They that know God, truly know God, will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. If you know God, you'll know yourself. To truly know yourself, you cannot be proud. And so it begins there. But humility, though it grows in that soil of knowing God, is to also be expressed horizontally towards others. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And so humility is expressed as having that heart attitude that serves. Having that heart attitude that was rooted in our Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God. In Philippians chapter 2, that very memorable passage, we hear of that the Apostle Paul says to the church at Philippi, verse 3 of chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, indeed we do have to look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Finally, he says, have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, you church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, meaning already you possess it. What's that mean? It means that that servant's heart that brought Christ to this earth that made him kneel before the disciples, is ours because we are in union with Christ. It's possible to serve like Christ. Which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God before the incarnation, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is a thing to be held to selfishly for his own advantage. No, he left glory and he emptied himself, meaning by adding to himself, taking the form of a servant. There it is. 
being born in the likeness of men. Here is, here is the great humiliation of Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, who lives in the glorious presence of the Father and the Spirit, who sets that aside and adds human, human nature to himself apart from sin and comes to this filthy place. But he humbles himself further. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. There's the vertical. Humbled before the Father. Obedient to the point of death. How humble? Even death on a cross, you see. And so humility is rooted, it takes, it takes root in that soil of an encounter with God, knowing God and His glory. It grows in our heart, but it's more than an attitude. It, 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 it moves, it's willing to move outward and to begin to set others' needs ahead of our own and begin to serve others. This is the apron that we put on. I praise God for the many of you who are obvious to all of us that you wear that apron in your willingness to humbly serve others. Why put on this apron? He says, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, you see, that, that's why you should put it on because God is opposed to the proud. To not put on the clothing of humility is to be opposed by God. And the tense of that verb is ongoing. God is always opposing. It means to strongly resist. God strongly resists. He is opposed to the arrogant, to the proud, but he is always giving, pouring out his grace to the humble. That's why we should put on this, this apron. He quotes Proverbs chapter 3, just like James did. And this statement, this idea that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, beloved, this is an irrevocable spiritual principle by which God operates in his dealings with human beings and angels. It is irrevocable. It's non-negotiable. He always opposes pride and the proud, and he will always give grace to the humble. And there is no negotiating that. God sets his face against the proud. He stands in the road against the proud, but he freely pours out the grace to endure, the grace to forgive others who hurt you, the grace to overcome evil with good, the grace to be patient, the grace to serve without recognition. He, he will keep giving that grace. And why is God so opposed to pride? The scripture provides us many reasons. Why is God opposed to pride? Because pride plunged the universe, plunged the whole creation into judgment, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we read there of the fall of God, of God's creature Lucifer, his fall into Satan, when he said, I will be like the Most High. You see, pride is that attempt to grab at the status that belongs to God. To not let God be God, but to take that place 
to seek to take that place for yourself. It's a hunger for glory. A hunger for the glory that belongs only to God. Why is God opposed to pride? Because pride also created the chasm between God and humanity when our first parents in the garden listened to and followed the sly temptations of the evil one, the serpent, when he said to them, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's always a seed of truth in the lies of the devil. Yeah, they would come to know the difference between good and evil, but they would not be like God. <laughs> Why is God opposed to pride? Because pride, pride is a claim to be self-sufficient, to not be dependent as a creature upon God, to not be dependent as a Christian upon your Savior's grace and so forth. Pride forgets God. Pride forgets uh, our dependence on God. It robs God of the glory that is His. Pride, therefore, always ends up being thankless. Thankless to God. Because we think we stand on our own. And the Lord had warned the people of God, ancient Israel, about this repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, speaking to them through the nation, Deuteronomy chapter 8, as they approach promised land, he says in verse 11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest, listen, lest once you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. Verse 17, he goes and says, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power, my might have gotten me this wealth. It's a man named King Nebuchadnezzar who did that. God is always opposed to the proud. Why is God opposed to the proud? Because pride denies the very existence of God. Not just dependence, but the very existence of God. The psalmist in Psalm 10 says that all his thoughts, the arrogant, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Why is God opposed to the proud? Because pride rejects God's instruction, which is always for our good. His word is given to the human race to bring about shalom, to bring about human flourishing. But pride says, I know a better way. In the book of Jeremiah, speaking to the prophet, it says, the word of the Lord came to me, says Jeremiah. Jeremiah 13, verse 9. Now he says, thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart. Oh, I want to listen to my heart. Follow your heart. 
They stubbornly listen to their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, he says, you see. When, when you say in your conscience, your mind, I don't care what the scripture says about my sexuality, I'm going to listen to my heart. God is opposed to you. He stands in your way. He is resisting you. When you say in your heart, your mind, I don't care what the scripture says about marriage, about the use of my wealth, about the use of my time, the use of my tongue, how I speak. I'm going to listen to my heart. God is opposed to you. He is resisting you. He will stand in your way. When you say in your mind, I, not, I don't care what the scripture says about what it means to be a Christian in genuine fellowship with his people, the church. I have my own way of living the Christian life. God is opposed to you. And he resists you. You're proud. You have a better way. And if you are a Christian, it will bring about the, the discipline of God in your life because he loves you to restore you to what? Humble you. To bring you back to your place. So in a way of speaking, you have to choose your enemies. Who will it be? The world, the devil, friends who deny Christ, or God? Who will you have standing against you in this life? That's why God's opposed to the proud. And listen, pride always goes before the fall, says Scripture. What is it to clothe yourself with humility then, beloved? It's to have a right view of yourself that comes from a deepening view of God. It is to put on, see yourself as a servant in God's household. A servant of God and a servant of all of God's people. And how is it that we therefore put on this apron of humility how do we do it by entrusting your circumstances to God's loving care that's where this all ends up here in verse 7 let's read verses 6 and 7 what Peter says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you Let's begin by looking at the logic between verse 5 and verse 6. What he's saying here is because God resists the proud, because God is always opposed to the proud, but he will pour out his grace on the humble. You who need his grace, therefore what? Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before or under the mighty hand of God. Let him do the lifting up. Let him 
exalt you at the proper time, you see. Now, before we think about it in our own, our own lives, what was he saying to these people, to these original readers, these churches who were experiencing hostility? What he was saying is when you are under persecution, when you're feeling hostility, it's not a, it's not a, no, a moment to think you know better. It's time to humble yourself and embrace this and say to yourself, this is God's way of purifying my faith. And then cast your anxieties on him. Put yourself under his mighty hand, you see. That was what he was telling the original readers. There is no better place or safer place to be than under the mighty hand of God. And the promise to them was not that they would be always delivered from persecution, but delivered through it. And they would be exalted when at the due time, the proper time, which I think his emphasis really in this whole book, that time is what? The second coming. You will be exalted. Suffering is for this life, for this stage, for this age, for this journey to whatever degree you suffer, but it will not last forever. In due time, in the second coming of Christ, you will be exalted. You'll be made like him. And that's what he was saying to that early church. Remember, Peter keeps subtly returning to that same motif of what? Suffering now, glory later. Suffering this life, glory later. It's, the, it's the, cro- the cross now and the crown later. And so he's really saying the same thing, using new language, bringing new pictures, new dimensions. He says, when you do that, when you embrace this as the will of God, remember chapter 4, uh, chapter four 19, that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while still doing good, he says, you see. When you do that, when you humble yourself by not questioning God, not pointing at God, not saying, why, me, how could it be? And you humble yourself. You are placing yourself under the mighty hand of God, is what he says. I think I'd rather have God's mighty hand over me than against me. And this phrase, the mighty hand of God, is a very distinct phrase that's used in the Old Testament repeatedly to refer to God's deliverance of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, to the Exodus. They were delivered by God's mighty hand over and over, many times throughout the Old Testament. That phrase, the mighty hand, refers to the power of God that he exerted when he delivered Israel from Egypt. Looking forward, for example, in Exodus 3.19, the Lord said to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. (laughs) In Deuteronomy chapter 4, 34, looking backwards, it says, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, and here it is, and by a mighty hand? 
And then looking backwards, the prophet Daniel says in Daniel 9.15, Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. You see, over and over, that's only three examples. This phrase, a mighty hand, refers to that. In other words, it refers to God's power to save God's power to deliver from bondage and God's power to deliver even from his own wrath when he delivered Israel through the Passover lamb from his own wrath and his own condemnation. And this is what Peter is saying. He, what he's saying to them is that the God who delivered the Israelites through his own judgment by his mighty hand, the God who has raised Jesus in his exodus from what? Our Passover lamb, through what? That crucifixion and the wrath of the Father and raise him from the dead. This same God will exalt you on that day when Christ returns to be marveled at by those who have believed in him. And we'll be made like him because we'll see him as he is. And so he said, humble yourself. This is the same path of our Lord Jesus. I stopped reading short last in Philippians chapter 2. Let me go to the next two verses. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself under the Father placed himself under the Father's mighty hand, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, here's the name, Lord Kurios. Suffering now, glory later. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before him. Trust him. He will exalt you when that day comes. We all suffer. He said in chapter 419, right? According to God's will, whatever that may be, for you, for me, and so to humble yourself is to acknowledge that we live in God's plan. And in this redemptive plan, we need to fit ourselves in with an attitude of humility, admitting we're not in control of this plan, but we know where it's going. And we're going to live by faith, trusting that he knows what he's doing. How do we humble ourselves? In other words, in the, most, in the most practical way, what does it look like to humble yourselves? And for them, in the midst of all this hardship, how do we do it? Verse seven, you see, that's a subordinate clause. It's an instrumental clause. By casting all your anxieties on him. On him, you see. That's how we humble ourselves. This is the means. And there's a subtle implication in there about anxiety, about undue anxiety in that 
subtle, subtle implication is that to remain like that is pride. Because it's not to humble yourself. To keep them is in some way, to some measure, pride. You say, why? How? Well, you're forgetting who's in charge. You think you not only will control the future and need to fix it, but you think you even know the future when James says you don't even know what one day will bring. And so pride, you see, owns the things that belong to God. Sometimes there's a hunger for glory to be the guy who fixes it. That's my temptation. Fixers have a hard time with this. Are we supposed to fix it? There are a lot of reasons for anxieties, and we mentioned that when we went through Psalm 27. Some of them are physiological and so forth. But we're talking about here of facing the growing anxiety of suffering that is being brought because of your faith. See, that's what Peter's getting at primarily here and not bringing them to him, you see. So he says, cast, cast all your anxieties upon him. Peter was a fisherman, and this idea of casting comes from the fishing industry of his day. In some parts of the world, it's still done like this, right? They fished with nets, not with rod and reel, right? They fished with nets. On the edges of the net, there would be weights, rocks, stones tied on, and they would cast those nets, and then the weights would bring the net down upon fish who would swim in it, and then they would be caught, you see. And so Peter says, you need to cast anxieties. The net does no good sitting in the boat. (laughs) It has to be cast, you see. It has to be thrown. He's talking about what? He's talking about a spiritual interchange, uh, an inner relationship between you and God in prayer and meditation, a way of life of always bringing these problems, these, these anxieties, particularly these pressures of persecution, and casting them upon him understanding, believing, trusting that they are in his hands and that you don't know what a single day will bring about. That's what he means. You have to cast those anxieties and worries upon him. Trust in his mighty hand. Again, to preserve you through it. To sustain you through it. For he cares for you. He gives them a motivation. Because he cares for you. And that is just a beautiful phrase in the original language. It can easily be translated because it matters to him about you. It matters to him concerning you. Don't think he doesn't care, you see. And when your troubles multiply, it's easy to think that that God doesn't care. When you experience hostilities or troubles that seem to be inconsistent with God's character and God's promises, remember, it matters to Him. 
about you. He really is aware. Lord says, take these concerns and bring them to me. Trust me, speak to me, cast them upon me, leave them with me. I imagine that most of you are not facing severe hostility for you, Faith. I think some of you are, maybe in your job, your workplace, your family, the, your, your school, what have you. Some of you are, I know, but I know some of you are probably worried about other things, about an uncertain future, about your job, about an, uh, your spouse, about an unbelieving child, about, about your income, about your health. And before they overwhelm you, before they crush you, before you become proud in thinking you have the capacity to fix all this, humble yourself, cast them upon the Lord. Remember, you're not turning to someone, who, to something, to some sort of faceless cosmic force. When you cast these anxieties, you are speaking to the living heavenly Father, who knows the very number of hairs on your head. It matters to him about you. Now, my dad was a very generous person. He was a generous person before he was a Christian, and he became even more generous after he became a Christian. But before he became a Christian in, a, in his 50s, he was consumed with his work, consumed with success, making wealth. He was driven by pride. And I have many fond memories of my relationship with my dad, but I also have some tough ones, especially those before he became a Christian. Because a repeated experience I had with my dad before he was a believer was finally getting up enough courage to walk into his office to tell him about something going on at school, something that was hard for me as a young teen, only to find him distracted, consumed, the business, the phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. And more than once I walked out of that room thinking, I guess I just don't matter. It doesn't matter to him. But because it mattered to my heavenly father concerning my earthly father. And he brought him to faith as I prayed for him. That meant it mattered to my heavenly father concerning me and my prayers for him. And from that day on I knew what? It matters to him concerning me. Some of you face circumstances, again, that appear to contradict God's character or God's promises in your life. Maybe you heard some, you heard some devastating news this week. It matters to him. Some of you were rolling around your bed all night sometime this week. You couldn't sleep at all because of something. It matters to him. Some of you are not sure where you're going to go. You have a decision to make. You're at a crossroads in life. You're not sure to go left. You're not sure where to go right. It troubles you. It matters to him. It always matters to him 
concerning you. And so we learn together to cast these anxieties on him. Let's put our weight upon him. He is thinking, I can say this to every Christian in this room, he is thinking of you right at this moment. And not only knows every hair on your head, but whatever it is you wrestle with, it matters to him about that. You need to see God's character in that light. Nothing is too small to take him to him. Nothing is too big. You're under his mighty hand, you see. And so in a very practical way, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, I know this is true, so I understand it. How can, how can we unmask and, and, and weaken that insidious pride that keeps growing in our hearts, you know? In this life, it will be a struggle to the end. How do we weaken it? How do we unmask it? That pride that keeps sneaking back in saying, you can do this. <laughs> You're in control of this. Or that, that pride that sneaks in and, and says, You're sufficient for this task. How do we weaken that pride that hungers for glory, the glory that belongs to God, that hungers for recognition? So we turn to idols. How do we weaken that pride? But we don't, we don't cultivate humility by working on humility. Humility, again, is a byproduct of knowing God for who he is. Humility is a product of standing like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he was given that vision of God's glory in the temple. And then he said, woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. It was that vision of his glory. Humility grows in, in the soil of that experience of Job, you know, who argued with God, who, who, who thought he knew better, thought it was unfair that he would be suffering the way that he did, and then God answered him. <laughs> And then Job said, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see? And so we don't cultivate humility by working on humility. We work on knowing God, seeing him, having a high view of God, which is one of the central core efforts of gathering as a church to worship is to keep elevating God, to see him for who he is. And especially we grow in humility when we look at God's son and what it cost to save us. That there was no other way other than the son of God being humbled to the point of death because of your sin and my sin. And that breeds, nurtures humility in our hearts. Coming back again and again to God's means of salvation, 
So great is our sin, so great is his love. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, a preacher of a previous generation, he said, there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. Then he quotes to him, when I survey the wondrous cross. Do you know it? Say it with me. On which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That's what it cost. Who am I, you see? At the cross, we're all on level ground, beloved. There are no degrees. There's no other record that will save us but the record of God's Son. Amen? But in a room like this, I have to say, I have to say, I know there's some of you who have yet to humble yourself before the living God. And if you continue, my friend, to harden your heart against him, if you continue to refuse to acknowledge your creatureliness, your utter dependence upon God for life, if you refuse to acknowledge that you cannot do anything good enough to be forgiven, to be received into heaven, if you refuse to acknowledge that you need God's grace to be forgiven, cleansed, then pride always goes before the fall, and this will be the greatest fall of all. Pride is the one thing that will destroy you forever. Because you have God as your enemy today. Don't meet God as your enemy in the end, beloved. And so today, humble yourself. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself to acknowledge you are a sinner. Acknowledge whatever it is you've been trusting in that would keep you safe somehow is not a way. It's not the way. Cast yourself. Flee to the cross. Ask God to forgive you and cleanse you of your sins to help you believe and trust that when Jesus was crucified, it was for your debt. When Jesus was crucified, it was for your sin. That Jesus was enduring the wrath that you deserve and believe that God raised him from the dead. Jesus himself said this. He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. There's the good news. So humble yourself today.